Welcome to episode 13, Relationship Obsessive Compulsive Disorder, carefully differentiating between relationship OCD and typical relationship uncertainty or functional relationship doubt by Kimberly Quinlan, licensed marriage and family therapist. From Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hello and welcome. My name is Kimberly Quinlan. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist in the state of California. I specialize in obsessive compulsive disorder and anxiety disorders and also body focused repetitive behaviors, which involves skin picking, hair pulling, nail biting, any body focused um, behavior that um, really becomes a problem in somebody's life. But today I wanted to speak with you guys about relationship obsessive compulsive disorder. And the title of this presentation is Relationship Obsessive Compulsive Disorder, Carefully Differentiating Between Relationship OCD and Typical Relationship Uncertainty or Functional Relationship Doubt. Okay, so what we're wanting to do here is really be able to pull apart the specific symptoms that are um, identified with relationship OCD. We're going to shorten obsessive compulsive disorder with OCD for the sake of time here in this training. We also want to be able to differentiate between functional relationship worry or what we would consider typical relationship uncertainty. We want to identify the appropriate evidence-based treatments for relationship OCD. And we also want to identify any possible roadblocks that treatment providers might come across as they um, are presented with a client with relationship OCD. So before we move on, it's really important to first understand the basics of obsessive compulsive disorder. And, and I'm going to sort of just give a very brief rundown on how to conceptualize that. And once you get the conceptualization, you'll see how that will help you be able to basically diagnose and, and, and identify relationship OCD. So when it comes to OCD in my office or for anyone who's treating obsessive compulsive disorder, we conceptualize it using what we call the OC cycle. And you can imagine the O stands for obsessions and the C stands for compulsions. So what I want you to do is I want you just to, um, I know you can't have a visual here, but I'm going to, um, you could Google it just if you are wanting a, a visual of the OC cycle. But just for the sake of right now, I want you to imagine that there is a circle and on the very left of the circle, is, so basically on the west side of the circle is where we would write obsessions, right? Now, an obsession is a thought, a feeling. Um, it's usually unwanted. It's usually, um, it goes against our moral standard or our belief. It's often very intrusive, right? So it can happen repetitively um, and we can't control it. And when we have this thought or feeling or sensation in our body, and often it shows up in the form of anxiety, we naturally, as humans, the way that we have been, um, you know, over years we've developed, we naturally want to get rid of that discomfort right? And what we do when it comes to these intrusive, incongruent thoughts, feelings, sensations, or urges is in effort to make it go away, we do what we call a compulsion. So you can now imagine if you're looking at this circle in, in, in your mind, on the very right side, on the east side of the circle would be the compulsion, right? And a compulsion is a behavior that we do. It could be 
uh, covert, which is an, a, a behavior we do in our mind, or overt, which would be a behavior that you could see, right? A physical behavior. And we do this to make the discomfort go away. Now there is relief with that, right? When we, when we have a fear and we do something to make that fear go away or we attempt to make it go away, there is some slight relief. But the problem with this is, and this is why we use the circle conceptualization or the, the cycle conceptualization is when you do that compulsion, the thought comes back. And when the thought comes back, we have to do the compulsion again to make the thought or feeling or urge or sensation go away. And now you can imagine we're caught in a cycle that's very repetitive, very time-wasting, very distressing, right? And this is the conceptualization we use for contamination OCD, for those who wash their hands. It might be um, for those who have... Um, fear or thoughts that they might harm someone. This is the same cycle that plays out in all the different types of OCD. Symmetry, OCD, um, you know, there are multiple subtypes which we can go into at a later date. Um, but okay, so we've got this basic framework now, right? We have an obsession. In effort to make the obsession go away, we do a compulsion. And when we do that compulsion, we get short-term relief, but then the thought comes back and now we have to do the compulsion again or we have to do more and more and more and more, right? Which again is exhausting. Now, this shows up in relationships and it is often very commonly undiagnosed and um, not identified, which keeps the person stuck in that cycle, right? And my hope for today is um, for you all is to be able to identify if this is happening so that you know the appropriate intervention, right? So Doron Derby and Sesson Wall um, in 2014 uh, wrote an article called Relationship Obsessive Compulsive Disorder, a Conceptual Framework. And they basically identified the symptoms or the behaviors involved with relationship OCD. And they identified that it often will involve doubts, or a preoccupation centered on the perceived suitability of the relationship itself, right? So the way that OCD um, shows up in the form of relationship OCD is that, um, and I'm going to give you lots of examples here, is that again, it will, it will show up as an ongoing, intrusive and repetitive doubt or preoccupation, right? With whether this relationship will work, right? It also involves concerns around the strengths of, of one's feelings towards their partner, right? So an example of that would be, um, do I love them enough or do I even love them, right? Um, it also shows up in rumination about the quote unquote rightness of the relationship, right? Um, and or their partner's feelings towards the, the relationship, right? So it can show up for ourselves. Like, do we, do we love them enough or do we love them the right way? Or it can also show up in the way that they feel about us. So there's two ways that um, it can present itself. Okay, so um, there are two different subtypes of relationship obsessive compulsive disorder. And again, this is all outlined in the Doran Derby Sesson Wall um, article, the 2014 article that will be available to you um, in the notes. So the first one here is relationship-centered OC symptoms, and that is specifically related to the feelings around the relationship itself, the fear and the need for certainty around the relationship itself. And so relationship-centered OC symptoms might involve um, examples like 
uh, am I happy enough, right? It might be, um, I'm not feeling enough of, am I feeling enough of the right emotion, right? Do I feel strongly enough for this partner, right? Um, you might also have in the form of imagery of images of you cheating, right? Um, images of you, um, running away from the client. So that, but they're intrusive, right? Um, they are theory, these symptoms and obsessions are theoretically and empirically differentiated from functional relationship worries, right? They are commonly start with what if statements, right? Um, and an example here would be that they're very, as we mentioned before, they're not congruent with their beliefs, right? They, they feel like they're out of their control, now, again, if we were to compare them to functional relationship worries, they're often perceived as less rational than worries, right? So if we're having, um, you know, very functional or a typical relationship uncertainty, um, that might, that uncertainty might feel very true to you, very, um, like it's lining up with your beliefs. But when it comes to relationship-centered obsessive compulsive symptoms, it's very much um, not the case in that it's very incongruent um, and it it's doesn't feel rational to be thinking this way. And a good way to pick up on these types of obsessions is to look out for what-if statements. They will often start with, well, what if... That's how they'll be presented in the office. What if I don't love my partner? What if it doesn't work? What if they don't love me enough? Or excuse me, I don't love them enough, right? Um, so that is really um, a basic understanding of that relationship-centered OC symptom. Now, the second subtype of relationship OCD is partner-focused obsessive-compulsive symptoms, now, um, Dorham, Derby, Sessampool, and Talmore in 2012 wrote an article called Flaws and All. And it, the topic here was exploring partner focused relationship OCD. Um, and here they identify that partner focused OC symptoms involve, uh, disabling occupation or preoccupation with deficits in the partner, right? So before we were talking about um, really obsessing over the relationship itself, um, but with partner-focused OC symptoms, it's focusing on the deficits of their partner. Um, and it can be presented in a variety of domains, such as appearance, intelligence, sociability and morality. So let me give you a couple of examples of that. So for appearance, it might come up or show up in the form of, well, what if I'm not attracted to her? Am I attracted to her? And having needing a lot of certainty around how attracted you are to them, right? It might also be related to a part of their body, like I can't stop thinking about their nose, I can't get it out of my mind, I can't stop thinking about their, you know, ear or penis or stomach, what it could be any area. And and it doesn't actually have to mean that there's something wrong with their partner's body. Um, it's just that there is this uh as we said, intrusive preoccupation with this part of their body. Another one here is, we, like we said, with intelligence. So what if they're not smart enough, right? And then a lot of um, compulsive rumination around, you know, is that suitable? Is that okay? And the, when it comes to morality, um, an example might be, um, could they be a liar? Would they be a liar? What's their moral code? Are they someone who might, um, you know, lie to me or cheat on me in the future, right? Now, in some literature, um, this is also referred as body dysmorphic disorder by proxy, specifically rated, related to appearance, right? So if you're obsessing about your partner's appearance, um, and 
um, that the good thing about whether you conceptualize it that way or not is that it's treated the same. And I'm going to give you a really good outline of the appropriate treatment for OCD and BDD, body dysmorphic disorder, because the treatment is actually the same, which is makes things really easy for us. Um, okay, so what we can see here is, is that the two different types, while they present very similar, the content is a slight bit different. So again, just to review, we have relationship-centered, obsessive-compulsive symptoms, um, the intrusive thoughts will be specifically related to the relationship itself. And then we have partner-focused symptoms, which is mostly related to the details on the suitability of that one partner and small details that could be causing uncertainty for you. Okay. Now, the thing here and the um, one thing I want to mention is there are no rules when it comes to OCD. OCD has a way of attacking the thing we love the most, right? And so um, in that case, um, you will find the client when they present to you in a lot of distress because they will report to you that they actually really do like this person. They want to like this person, um, but it um, they're feeling very out of control with this situation and the main concern is uncertainty, right? Now, as I said, there are no rules. OCD can attack any part of the relationship. So um, it can also attack um, familial relationships. So people I've seen in my office can be really obsessive around, let's say, their partner's mom. You know, is that mom the person that I want to be my mother-in-law? Their mom's nose really bothers me um, and gets really focused and and, um, very obsessed in that one area. Okay. Just one note too, to remember when I talk about the word obsessed, I don't mean in a way that is enjoyable. I talk about the way that is intrusive, very uncomfortable, very distressing, and very much repetitive. So let's take a look at the presentation of relationship OCD. First, again, if we were to go back to that conceptual OC cycle, we're going to look at the obsessions, right? And we've gone through a lot of this already, but I really want you guys to feel like you've got a really good understanding here of how it presents. So the obsessions can present in the form of a thought, similar to what we've identified. Is he the right one? Um, do I feel love for him? How will I know if I feel love for him? It can also present as an image, right? Um, and so it would be, you can't get the, their face um, out of your mind um, or a part of their body out of your mind. The, their image just keeps repetitively, you know, forcing its way into your focus. It can also present in the form of urges, right? So you might feel a sensation of urge to leave your partner, right? Or the urge to cheat on your partner, right? And again, to differentiate the difference between relationship OCD and normal functional uncertainty or doubt is that these obsessions are what we call ego dystonic, right? So in clinical terms, we have thoughts, feelings, sensations, and urges that are ego dystonic, and we have thoughts, feelings, sensations, and urges that are ego syntonic. The difference between the two is that ego dystonic thoughts, feelings, sensations, and urges do not line up with our values. They do not line up with our sense of reason on what is right for us, right? They go against our own personal values, right? Ego syntonic would be, I don't like this person and that feels right to me right? It, it lines up with their values. It lines up with their morals. It lines up with the way in which they choose to live their life. So that can be a really helpful way to help the diagnosis process. Um, 
is to really pull apart. Um, does the person have these thoughts intrusively? Does the person have these thoughts repetitively? And do this, these thoughts line up with their values, right? And that can help us pull apart the difference between typical relationship uncertainty that we all have, you know, at different parts of our life or throughout our whole life um, and relationship OCD. So again, to look at the ego dystonic thoughts, an example of that might be that the appearance should not be important in selecting a partner, right? Um, but what if their partner, they still have the what if thought, right? Um, or it might be, I love her, but I can't stop questioning my feelings. That's a really ego dystonic um, presentation of these thoughts, feelings, sensations, and urges. Okay. Again, the obsessions are unacceptable and unwanted. And um, the byproduct of these obsessions is often strong feelings of guilt and shame right? Because they can't make sense of why they're feeling this way. They can't make sense of the thoughts they're having and they feel very bad, you know, as a whole for feeling and going through this experience. Now, the compulsions, okay? So we've talked about the obsessions. A compulsion, again, is something we do to make those thoughts and feelings and sensations and images go away. Um, the compulsions or the compulsive behaviors are aimed to really relieve and alleviate that st distress, right? And it's often very, very repetitive. You know, the more you have the thoughts, the more we may do compulsions, now, um, compulsions, I'm going to go through here in a second, um, more detail, but some examples would be comparing your partner's characteristics with others. Um, it might also involve neutralizing behaviors, which is, you know, where in, you've had this intrusive thought and then you neutralize it by having positive thoughts about them. Often clients will very much get involved in reassurance seeking, which we'll, I'll go through here in very, very soon. Um, but one thing just to mention to you is um, you can go to the Abrahamowitz, McKay and Taylor article, um, which was released in 2018, which is called OCD subtypes and spectrum disorders. If you're wanting a greater um, detail of all of the subtypes of OCD, I just wanted to mention that in case some of this is ringing a bell for you with some of your clients in different areas. Okay. So Doran Derby Sessonwall in 2014, um, again, brought out an article called Relationship Obsessive Compulsive Disorder, a Conceptual Framework. And they really um, did a great job of identifying the difference between normal functional relationship worry and relationship OCD. So that's there for you to read if you want additional resources. And again, they really differentiated the difference between doubt um, and the need for certainty um, by pulling apart, as we've mentioned, these key components, which is um, does it line up with their values? right? Does it line up and is it congruent with their sense of, you know, morals and goals and hopes for the future, right? Um, the next part to think about is, does it happen intrusively and repetitively and does it feel like it's out of your control, right? Um, that's another way to help define what is relationship OCD, right? And an example would be for someone who has, um, you know, normal functional relationship uncertainty, you know, just like we all do in our relationships, um, your thoughts will be more flexible, right? So an example might be, um, even though it can be scary to begin a new relationship, I'm open to seeing where this goes, 
right? Um, so there's flexibility there. There's a curiosity there. And there's a willingness to just take the steps one at a time and see where it goes, right? Um, with relationship OCD, it'll sound more like, what if he or she isn't the right one for me and I'll never be happy and I'll miss having the right relationship and I'll die alone, right? It's very catastrophic. Um, it's, there's a very deep need for certainty, right? Which is a real trap because as you can all imagine, we can't have certainty on our relationships. Often I will talk to clients about, you know, how do you even know how, when you love someone? Describe what that feels like. It's, it's almost impossible to describe how to know when you're in love. Most people will just say, Oh, I just know. Right. And that's really frustrating for those who have relationship OCD because they're looking for more certainty or more concrete evidence that this is the one. And that's really, really hard. I often will joke with my clients and say, the truth is I've been married 15 years and I still don't know if my husband's the one. I will never have absolute certainty on that. And our job is to embrace that uncertainty right? But again, um, that's how we differentiate the difference between, you know, again, functional worry or normal typical relationship uncertainty and relationship obsessive compulsive disorder, right? Now, one thing to note here, and I'm, I'm talking about this just because I, we always need to be assessing for safety. If somebody's fears are coming up, but it's in the presence of actual safety concerns, whether it be domestic violence, um, sexual violence, physical violence, um, that is different, right? We treat that much different and we always approach the safety concerns first before we move towards diagnosing relationship obsessive compulsive disorder. So I want to make sure everyone is very aware to assess for that first um, and then move on to looking at um, the thoughts, feelings and sensations and whether they are intrusive, egodystonic, repetitive and distressing, right? Um, to finalize here, relationship OCD symptoms are less, to quote um, Doran and Derby and Sessonwall, is relationship symptoms are less con- self-congruent and more likely associated with compulsive safety behaviors and perceived as less relation- rational excuse me, than a worry. Okay. Okay, so let's take a look at the compulsions and how it will present and how you will identify it in the office. Okay, so common compulsions are um, in response to these obsessions, repetitively checking one's feelings, right? How do I feel? Do I feel good? Do I feel bad? Am I in love? Am I not? right? They're constantly doing a self-check on their emotional, excuse me, their emotions, their physical reactions. That could be even arousal. Am I aroused? Do I have lubrication? Do I have an erection? Um, They also might be doing a self-check mentally. Do, you know, mental in terms of does this, um, does, do, am I having thoughts or fears? Am I having uncertainty? Right. Uh, they also might compare physical, mental, or emotional characteristics of their partner to other individuals, which we talked about before. Often clients will spend a lot of time, um, doing this covert behavior. Again, a behavior that we can't see that we do in our mind which is comparing small details, right? Again, it's very hard to compare. How do we define how happy somebody else is or whether somebody else is in love compared to our feelings? And I often will explain to clients that's very much a dead-end road because some people are really good actors, (laughs) 
and actresses and they can put on a happy face. So we don't really know what we're comparing to and it's all done in an attempt to find certainty on their own feelings. And we know as clinicians that comparison is always a dead end because you can never get evidence um, of how someone's doing by just looking and comparing. Another compulsion is neutralizing, which is trying to make a negative, scary thought positive and peaceful. So it might be um, an attempt to reduce obtrusive thoughts, feelings, sensations, and urges is to go into a compulsive imagery behavior where you're trying to imagine it and trying to imagine it good, right? You're trying to imagine it going well um, to cleanse yourself of those intrusive, uncomfortable thoughts. One of the biggest compulsions that people with relationship OCD get caught in is reassurance seeking, right? And it's often that's where it gets really messy in the relationship because they've had this what if thought. This uncertainty has shown up in the form of an obsession. And then our instincts is to go to our partner and talk to them about it. Do you feel loved by me? Are you sure you you think we're the one? Are you happy with our relationship? Do you think I feel that way about you? Do you think that I could be a terrible person who's, you know, living in denial? Maybe this is all a big lie. Can you give me any reassurance? How do you perceive me in the relationship? Do I look happy? Do I look like I'm in love? Um, what do you think my deep, deep desires might be? You know, again, going very deep into the attempt to get certainty. Now, at the beginning, the partner's going to, of course, be like, hun, of course, no, everything's great. <laughs> you know, or maybe they will bring up their own concerns, which would their very typical relationship uncertainty or doubts. But what will end up happening is over time, it will become very repetitive. The questions will continue to come repetitively and the partner gets really burnt out and frustrated and um, there's trust issues then because, you know, when one partner shows up with such repetitive doubt, the partner without OCD has no choice but to question the person's real intent in the relationship. Now, reassurance seeking can also show up in the form of um, internet searches, Google searches, and that's where it gets really tricky um, because we all know that Google can present us with some pretty shady information. Okay, so I have here a couple of examples that I wanted to go through really quickly. So number one, we always can notice that obsessions can be often triggered by an event. So an example might be spending time with a couple or friends who appear happy, right? Now the intrusive thought would be, what if we're not as happy as they are, right? The fear would be, I'm not in the right relationship and I'm missing, quote unquote, the one, um, and I'll never be happy, right? Very catastrophic, very much um, fortune telling, right? Now, of course, the compulsion in effort to reduce that would be thinking back on all the happy experiences in your relationship, right? And asking others how they view the relationship, and then avoiding the next step in the relationship, right? Avoiding moving in or, you know, starting to tell your family members and so forth. So another example would be, okay, we've got the trigger. So the trigger might be having a lighthearted conversation with your partner about their music preferences, right? Early in the relationship. Now the intrusive thought might be, what if he's pretentious because he thinks classical music is the best type of music, right? You noticed here it started with what if, right? Um, the fear is what if he's pretentious, right? Could I be with someone who's pretentious? 
Could, could I have a happy life with someone who's pretentious? And then the compulsion would be maybe reading a definition of the word pretentious. Um, it might be asking friends what they think of people who are pretentious and would they be okay if you were with someone who was pretentious. And again, really seeking for a lot of certainty in this one area. Now, the third example I have here is trigger. The trigger would be maybe seeing a attractive person, right? Who is not your partner, right? Now, the intrusive thought would be, what if I'm attracted to them more than my girlfriend or boyfriend? Okay. And your fear or obsession would be, what if I don't really love them, right? And should I break up with them because I don't really love them? right? Again, this attempt to get certainty based on your fear. And now in the, another example of a compulsion would be Googling the definition of love or how to know when you're in love. What are the, what are the criteria for being in love? Do I meet all of those criteria? It might be checking for signs of being in love, right? So do it, does my, you know, you talk in the movies about, you know, your heart explodes and you feel butterflies. So you might be checking for that feeling, right? Or like the very typical Jerry Maguire top, you know, you complete me, right? So it's like, oh my gosh, do they complete me? Can I, how can I define that? You know, is that happening for me, right? So again, media really plays into this as always, because it gives us a really false sense of what love and romance and relationships look like. And often people are in an attempt to get that. Okay. Um, and maybe the alternative here is avoiding attractive individuals. So I've had clients in the past avoid going to the gym, avoid going to nightclubs, um, you know, really being careful about who they look at at the supermarket line um, in attempt to reduce being triggered and reduce having that uncertainty show up in their body. Because they know once the uncertainty shows up, they're very likely going to be um, needing uncertainty to feel better. Okay. So as you can imagine, the impact on relationships is huge, right? Often by the time clients have come to me, they're on their fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth relationship where this same pattern plays out. Everything is fine until it's not. And these what if thoughts present themselves. And then the client is overwhelmed with uncertainty, overwhelmed with anxiety, um, so much that it just um, breaks down and the client has no choice but to either break up with them because the distress is so high um, or the partner breaks up with them because it's things just get very chaotic. There is here really an important point, which is, again, to help the partners once you get them into your office to identify what is the difference between ego dystonic thoughts, feelings, and sensations and ego syntonic thoughts, feelings, and sensations. And, and our goal in treatment I'll talk about here in a little bit is to educate not only our clients, but our clients' partners so that they too can identify what is showing up as real right? Because there will be real stresses in the relationship. Um, but what is also, what is then relationship OCD, right? We all have stresses in our relationships and concerns and things we have to work through and sometimes attachment issues we have to manage and living together is really difficult as you can all probably nodding your heads as you listen. I'm like, yes, that's true for relationships um, and real concerns. But with um, relationship OCD, we have to be able to pull apart what are the ego syntonic concerns and what are the ego dystonic concerns and we treat them very very differently 
In a conceptual framework by Doran Derby and Cespin Wall 2014, they identify two assessment tools you can use. The first is the relationship obsessive compulsive inventory, otherwise known as the ROCI, which assesses for relationship centered obsessive compulsive symptoms like we talked about um, at the very beginning of this training. Now, there is also the partner-related obsessive-compulsive um, inventory, which is the P-R-O-C-S-I, which assesses partner-focused OC symptoms. Um, so they are available. I think you can get them on an online search, but if not, I, I do understand you can reach out to the authors um, and they may or may not be able to give you access to those. Now, something to consider here is there can be issues, as with all assessment tools, with how accurate the client self-reports. It is a self-report inventory, both of them, um, and some people are hesitant at the start of treatment to self-disclose entirely. So that is something to consider. In addition to that, assessments can be difficult to fill out right? Um, because they trigger off all of those obsessions, their, you know, images and thoughts and urges. And so often clients will do an avoidant compulsion in effort to um, avoid being triggered. But the concern with that is they, they refuse the assessment. So that's something to work with with your client. Really focus on building rapport first um, you know, it might involve just, you know, gently checking in for those what if statements or those ego dystonic statements, um, that can help you to, um, raise awareness for them first on that. This is fairly typical of, of relationship obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, last other thing to be concerned, concerned about when it comes to assessment, um, is that, People do tend to be dishonest because of the presence of shame. Uh, this is a very shame-filled disorder and they may be so filled with shame and so afraid of being found out um, that they may not self-report in an accurate way. So that's just something to think about as you move forward with assessment. Okay, so now we move on to the gold stuff, which is looking at the treatment, right? Now, the treatment for all obsessive compulsive subtypes is what we call exposure and response prevention. And that is a specific subtype of cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, that involves exposing the, the client to their fear while reducing the compulsive behavior that they have been doing. So Doran Derby and Cespin Wall in 2014 in the conceptual framework again, they talk about the importance of ERP for relationship OCD. And the reason that I really felt passionate about teaching this specific training is our instincts as therapists, when we see these types of symptoms, is to do a lot of talk therapy and to give our clients a lot of reassurance. No, you're a good person. You would never cheat on your boyfriend. The fact that you're worried about cheating on your boyfriend shows me that you wouldn't cheat on your boyfriend, right? Or, no, I conceive by what you're saying as we mirror to them, what I hear you saying is that you don't want to focus on your client, your partner's nose. Um, and so I can see that that is something. Let's maybe work on some tools to, to practice not thinking about it, right? Which again, these discussions led by the therapist then become a part of their compulsion, right? And so often by the time a client will come to me, they've spent thousands of dollars and spent hundreds of hours in uh, more 
let's say, psychoanalytic or psychodynamic talk therapy, um, trying to find certainty. Um, but unfortunately, really what that was, was just hundreds of hours and thousands of dollars worth of doing compulsions. Now, I don't want that to scare you because I think we all get caught in our clients' compulsions when we treat obsessive compulsive disorder at some point. But um, again, the reason I'm so passionate about teaching any kind of treatment for OCD is for us as clinicians to be very careful about when we are engaging in compulsions with the client. Again, clients have already tried to solve the problem. They've already tried to solve the what if thought and a clinician setting in trying to solve it and get them certainty is only going to make them feel more stuck and more depressed and, and ultimately more hopeless about their situation because the compulsive cycle has just gotten bigger and bigger. So when it comes to exposure therapy, our first goal is to reduce all of those compulsive behaviors. So we're first going to look at reducing reassurance seeking with the partner and with Google and any family members or friends. We're going to look at reducing any avoidance that that client is having. We're going to look at reducing any checking that the client is doing physically or mentally, right? And we're going to um, try and reduce any mental rumination that they might be doing and trying to find certainty on this one specific concern or problem. Now, there is lots of um, evidence to show that exposure therapy is also very well accompanied by acceptance and commitment therapy, um, which is a treatment modality that helps clients um, practice mindfulness skills um, and the act of diffusion, which is not um, fusing with their thought, but just allowing their thoughts to be there in instead of trying to solve them. And in addition to that, it's um, also getting the client to identify their values and work at really living their life based on their values. Again, those, that's why we talk about ego dystonic and ego syntonic is once we can identify our values, um, we can work at only engaging in behaviors that line up with those values instead of engaging in behaviors that are ego dystonic which is, again, commonly the obsessions that someone with relationship OCD has. Um, there is an article by Tuig and Abrahamowitz, who's someone who's done a lot of research in this area um, at all in 2000, excuse me, and 17 about exposure therapy for OCD and from an acceptance and commitment therapy framework. And they very much um, enhance exposure therapy with the addition of acceptance and commitment therapy. Now, also something to keep in mind is that others have found that dialectical behavioral therapy is also very helpful to help manage emotional dysregulation um, and improve mindfulness skills related to how the part, the partner and the client are um, relating to each other and communicating to each other. Okay, so with exposure therapy, like I said, we really first double down in trying to reduce those compulsions. If you were to go back to that cycle, as soon as you take compulsions out of the picture, the cycle can't continue. Now, often clients will say to me, Kimberly, just teach me how to not have the thoughts and then the cycle will stop. But because we can't control that unless we, you know, removed a part of your brain, which has multiple concerns alongside it and isn't really possible, um, we can't undo thoughts. We can't stop them. The only way we can logically attack this disorder is to take the perspective of reducing compulsions, right? So we want to reduce mental checking. We want to reduce mental rumination. We want to reduce checking of arousal. 
Um, we want to reduce checking of someone's subjective experience of love for the partner. We want to reduce mental comparison of other couples. Um, we want to reduce mental hoarding of memories and positive feelings that they may have had from the past. We want to reduce mental checking of how committed they are. We want to reduce them engaging in imagery compulsions, like, you know, trying to, to imagine whether they can see themselves, you know, old and gray with that partner. Now, we also want to reduce uh, reassurance seeking with family members and internet and um, even co-workers. We work at reducing compulsive testing, right? So often a client will engage in these testing compulsions where they um, bring up subjects and test their partner or um, engage in testing sexual experiences to test whether this is the quote unquote the right partner. Uh, we want to reduce relational avoidance, okay? So often people will, at this point, stop dating. They won't say, I love you. They'll avoid commitment. Um, they'll avoid saying words like boyfriend or girlfriend. So we want to reduce that avoidant behavior, and we want to reduce neutralizing thoughts. And so once we've reduced those compulsions, we move into what we call exposure therapy. And this is where we've expose them to their actual fear, right? We, we stare our fear down is what I say. We say, bring it on. Let's, let's see if I, I, I crack. Let's see if I snap and all my fears come true. And so once you have um, reduced a lot of these compulsions, you can then move into exposure therapy, which might involve, um, you know, reading stories about people who have scammed their partner or been in denial, right? Or fled their partner. You write, might write stories or scripts about your fear coming true and read them over and over again um, to expose you to your fear. And then you go practice not engaging in those old compulsions that you used to engage in. You might have them watch movies about liars or cheaters or runaway brides or disruptive relationships, right? And then again, their job is this simulates their trigger and then it leaves them to practice tolerating the discomfort, tolerating uncertainty in their body and not engaging in those old compulsive behaviors, right? We also may have them commit to their partner, right? As long as that is an authentic thing for them, right? That it's, that's egocentric for them. So these are some ideas for exposure therapy. And then we also using ACT, if you want to um, practice ACT and you find that that is something you feel skilled in or you want to become skilled in, the ACT would encourage the use of mindfulness skills such as increasing awareness of these thoughts um, and really becoming an observer to the thoughts instead of reacting to them every single time. Um, ACT also encourages us to practice willingness, which is really willingness to have the discomfort and the uncertainty and the thoughts and the urges and sensations without fusing with them again. Um, it also allows us to engage, as I mentioned before, in really connecting with their values and living their life based on their values. So an example would be if I have a client who is engaged but has severe relationship OCD, I have her continue to plan the wedding while she tolerates these thoughts, right? Um, we also really have to practice non-judgment here, which is a really basic mindfulness skill, which is we can't judge the thoughts as bad. Because when we do that, that's when shame comes in. So we want to really look at reducing their degrees of shame by practicing non-judgment. And we really want to encourage them to stay present instead of ruminating of on possible things that might happen in the future, right? So we may really focus in on teaching them how to stay very present and mindful in that moment. 
And again, really important is to teach mindful communication, right? When it comes to family accommodation, this is absolutely something we need to look at. Boding, Paproki, Borkham and Abrahamowitz have created a article in 2013 called Let Me Check On That For You, which is a symptom accommodation in romantic partners of adults with OCD article. And they talk about how family members who give a lot of reassurance or they help the client, our clients who have relationship OCD by doing their compulsions for them, right? Which ultimately means that the client is avoiding, right? Um, it That actually was associated with patient symptoms. So the more that a family member accommodated, the more severe the person's OCD symptoms were. And the more they accommodated post-treatment, the more unlikely they were to relapse and have a reduction in um, success in long-term treatment. So our goal here is to really work with the, the partners and to really have them be able to identify what is a compulsion and to be not accommodating their partner in those compulsive behaviors. One thing to really remember is when doing the family accommodation assessment, we have to note that family members may report differently depending on the relationship with our client. If it's a very hostile relationship, the family member can tend to over-report. If it's a very enmeshed relationship, the family member tends to under-report. And so it's important to check in with that when discussing symptomology and compulsions with the partners. Okay, so just a note to remind the partners some really important ways that they can support their partners is uh, reduce reassurance seeking, don't try and accommodate their anxiety, definitely encourage the partners not to be getting angry at their their partner with relationship OCD and try not to be the logical, rational partner who, you know, tries to help them find certainty because, again, we know that that is only going to cause um, a massive amount of increased compulsive behavior. What they should be doing and what we should be doing as professionals is validate their discomfort, validate how difficult it is for them, um, encourage them to be uncomfortable, um, celebrate any victories they may have right? And be genuine with them, share with them from a genuine perspective. So that's some tools for us and for the partners to really look at. And so what I want you guys to leave with today is to be able to really tune into your clients and identify when these doubts are showing up in the relationship, to be able to identify and differentiate the difference between what is typical relationship uncertainty. And in that case, we would you know, talk with them and work through it and help them find a solution, right? And we would encourage them to find out their feelings and understand and identify their true feelings. But with relationship OCD, that's actually the opposite of what we need to do. Um, And in those cases, we would be identifying, you know, that they're having intrusive, repetitive, uncomfortable thoughts, feelings, or sensations, that these thoughts, feelings, and sensations do not line up with their values, um, that cause them significant distress, and they can identify that this isn't egocentonic, and that we need to work at increasing uncertainty, increasing their ability to be uncomfortable, decreasing the uh, degree of compulsive behaviors that they are engaging in and bringing them to a place of mindfulness where they can live a life that lines up with their values while they're willingly accepting all of that discomfort. 
So um, I do hope that that helps you all. Um, again, it's something I'm really passionate about educating just because we as clinicians always have to be sure that we're, um, you know, helping the client and not encouraging or increasing the problematic behaviors that they are doing. Um, I'm more than happy if anyone needs to, to reach out to me if they have specific questions, because this is, this is hard. It's hard to pull it apart, but I hope that you feel more confident in assessment and treatment at this point. So have a wonderful day and I will um, look forward to talking to you all again very soon. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.